please take your Bibles and turn in them to Luke chapter 5, the Gospel of Luke chapter 5. As I said last week, we are now moving away from our series in Matthew for a time. Uh, we begin this morning uh, our Advent series. It is the Advent season, and as has been our custom, at least the last few years, we do a special series of sermons around this time. If you're not familiar with Advent or, or that word or that custom, that tradition, Advent simply means coming. Uh, the season of Advent celebrates the coming of the Son of God into the world. Uh, it has played a special part in a particularly historic Christian traditions that prioritize something known as the liturgical calendar, the Christian calendar. Uh, on the Christian calendar, you have many dates often Sundays in particular, that celebrate or acknowledge particular things in the Christian faith, particular doctrines, particular events, things like that. The Christian calendar is not inspired by the Bible. Uh, we don't believe that Jesus was born on December 25th. Um, in fact, surely he was not born on December 25th. But, uh, but nonetheless, it's been the tradition in, in many, in many uh, Christian circles to acknowledge certain dates and certain seasons to focus the attention of the church on particular doctrines, on particular realities. Now, there's a way you can make use of the Christian calendar in the season of Advent that would be, um, I think, in some way negative. And that's if you take a kind of superstitious approach to the calendar. Uh, there are some who think there's a kind of magic to the Christian calendar, that if there are sermons on the incarnation in the season of Advent, somehow there's a special, special juice to that, a special magic to that. And if we celebrate you know, this particular doctrine on this particular day, which has been in keeping with the tradition of the church for years, well, then we'll have a special blessing that comes to us. Uh, we don't use the calendar in that way at all. Uh, there's no foundation in the Bible for thinking uh, that way at all. Some esteem some days in special ways. Others esteem every day alike. Romans 14, verse 5, let each one be convinced in his own mind. So there's no special magic about us focusing our hearts on the incarnation just now in this uh, Advent season. But nonetheless... We do recognize, speaking now for our elders here, we've, we've had this conversation in past seasons, uh, we do recognize that in a very real way, uh, most of the families in our church are thinking a lot about the subject of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus during this season, and even our wider culture is thinking about it. Uh, you will see certain movies and hear certain songs uh, that are directing the minds of the culture, the attention of the culture, when it's at its best at least, uh, toward the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. And so we as your pastors and those of us who preach, we want to sort of capture your attention. Uh, the fact that you are thinking about this already, we figure, well, wouldn't it be helpful uh, to, in the sermons for this month, uh, focus on this doctrine in a special way? And that's why we've decided to do this. So the next four weeks, uh, we will be considering the subject of the incarnation. And there's a special burden to these sermons uh, this year in particular. One of the things that I become concerned about, it seems more so every year, is that uh, for some, as they reflect upon Christmas, as they reflect upon uh, the birth of Jesus and the coming of Christ, uh, their reflections sometimes do not rise any further or any higher than a kind of sentimental reflection on the scenes of the baby in the manger. And so we see nativity scenes, we hear songs about the silent night, the holy night, and, and we, we, we picture Mary with the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, and there's the, the animals there, and there's the wise men, which I've been informed I've ruined for everybody now, all their nativity scenes, as they were probably not three wise men, and they were definitely not there in the stable. But nonetheless, we think on those scenes, and we think, isn't this sweet? And, and, and we, we think, well, I, you know, what we're to get out of this is to recognize the humble scene and how precious this is. And, and for some, their reflection on the significance of the coming of Christ doesn't rise above that uh, during the holiday season, Christmas season. Uh, well, the purpose of these sermons is to emphasize that when we think about the incarnation, we're to think about a lot more than that. Uh, more than sentimental reflections on the sweetness of the birth scene of Jesus, which the Bible barely talks about. I want us to think more over these coming weeks on the doctrine of the incarnation of the Son of God, and particularly the purpose for that scene. Why did Jesus come into the world? Like, why Advent? What's the significance 
of God's Son coming incarnate, beginning as a baby, but of course growing into a man who achieves our redemption. See, the baby in the manger doesn't do anything for us. No one's saved by that baby in the manger. We're saved by what that full-grown man would do, the incarnate Son of God, who is indeed the Savior of the world. That will be the burden of these messages. So we're going to go to some statements of the Lord himself and some statements of his apostles that particularly have in view why it is that Jesus came. So the title we've given in the series is I Have Come. Uh, the text we'll look at this morning, Jesus uses that language. But we'll also consider the reflection of some apostles on the appearing of the Son of God or the coming of the Son of God or the advent of the Son of God into the world. One more comment then before I read our passage this morning, Luke chapter 5. I just want to say a word to the children that are here. Uh, so, so kids, uh, this season in particular uh, is a special time for you, I think, to consider the truths of the Bible and to consider the person of Jesus and to consider what this is all about. You come here often, you see the adults in the room singing and we, our hearts are engaged with what's going on here and we love to sit here and listen to sermons and to read the Bible. What's it all about? Well, over the next four weeks, I know you can't understand everything I say Sunday by Sunday, but I hope you'll try to lean in and listen in to these sermons, these messages. I'll also do your Sunday school lessons over these weeks and maybe lessons your parents are giving to you and try to understand this Christmas, uh, why is it that Jesus came into the world? What's the, what's the excitement about? Why do we give so much attention to celebrating the person of Jesus and what his incarnation is coming into the world means for us. So I encourage you kids, uh, you are old enough, if you're sitting in here this morning, you're old enough to listen in, and you're old enough to understand these truths that we're going to be talking about over these weeks. So I'd like to read now Luke chapter 5, our text will be in verses 27 through 32. Luke 5, verses 27 through 32. After this, he, that is Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. Now I'll just note Levi is Matthew. So when we read the same account in Matthew's gospel some months on from now, uh, it's about the Matthew, the tax collector, who wrote the gospel of Matthew. He had two names, just like Peter is also Simon, Paul was also Saul. Levi and Matthew are one and the same person. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered him, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray again. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Father, we come now before your most holy word, inspired by the Holy Spirit, a record of true events, a record of revelation from you about your own person, about your own son, about the state of fallen and sinful man, about the grace of God that is available to all who trust in the Lord Jesus. Please, Father, Lord, now open our minds and our hearts to understand the scriptures. Cause us to love your word. Cause us to listen to it, to hear it, to receive it. I pray particularly this morning for a special kind of sealing of the truth on each individual heart here. A special kind of application of the truth to each individual heart here. None of us could possibly know the need of each individual person who has come into this room this morning, but you know them all. And so we pray, you who know the hearts of man, uh, you who can heal all of our diseases, bind up all of our broken bones, we pray, Father, that you would apply your word this morning in ways I would never know how, none of us would ever know how. Do this by your spirit. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, four points. Uh, so kids, if you're taking notes, it's an easy outline to follow. I'm just going to tell the story of the text again. Okay, four points. We'll consider first Levi's call, secondly Levi's party, thirdly the Pharisees' complaint, and fourthly Jesus' response. Levi's call, Levi's party, the Pharisees' complaint, 
Jesus' response, and I hope to give applications uh, throughout each of these points as we go. Consider with me, first of all, Levi's call. Uh, we read in verse 27, he saw a tax collector named Levi. Now, you're going to find this whole episode a little confusing if you don't understand what it would have meant to be a tax collector in Jewish society. For a Jewish man to be a tax collector in Jewish society in those days. The term tax collector comes up often in the Gospels. It is often paired with the term sinner. Uh, so Jesus is often among tax collectors and sinners, or publicans and sinners. A publican, same thing as a tax collector, almost synonymous. Uh, two sides of the same coin. Tax collectors and sinners are who associated with one another. Uh, it's commonplace to identify them together. Uh, Luke 18 tells us the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember, the Pharisee is the one who thanks God that he's not like this tax collector over here, this wicked, wretched man. Uh, you know, he, he fasts and he tithes and he's, he's outwardly clean, right? The tax collector won't even raise his eyes to heaven. He's just so ashamed of who he is and what he's done and he beats his breast. That tells us something of the nature of tax collectors in those days. You may know some of you in Matthew 18, where Jesus gives instructions regarding church discipline, uh, that is uh, someone who manifests that they are not, in fact, a brother or a sister. They're not, in fact, a Christian. The church is to put that person out of the fellowship and to vote them out of the membership of the church is how we would probably phrase it today. And, and what Jesus says is you're to treat that one as a what? Gentile and a tax collector. Well, treat them like a lost person. Treat them like a wicked person. Treat them like a sinner who does not yet know or understand the grace of God. Uh, tax collectors, in a word, were the worst. Uh, they were the lowest of the low. There's no one more despised in Jewish culture than a tax collector. And I'm not sure there's a good analog culturally for us today. But to give you a sense of kind of the visceral, emotional response people would have to the wretchedness of a tax collector, uh, we might think of a virulent racist. Or we might think of a sex offender or something like that. Kind of a, a member of society that was universally uh, despised, whose behavior and conduct were so odious to the typical uh, Jew. The bottom line uh, is that tax collectors for Jews were literally the most despised members of society. Now, why was this? Well, in those days, uh, the Romans were the overlords of the Jews. The Romans would impose uh, what they would have considered oppressive taxes on the Jews. And they would tax the Jews based on a system known as tax farming. So the, the Romans would assess the tax value of a particular county or region. Uh, so they would say, you know, this area is worth a certain tax value. We're going to collect that tax value. And then what they would do is they would sell the rights to collect those taxes to the highest bidder. That's a way of enlarging their value and their return. So someone would bid for the right to collect those taxes, and many of the Jews did this. So Jews would pay for the rights to collect taxes. By the way, I just noticed our dear brother and sister, Evans and Jeanette, walk in this morning, beloved missionaries from Ghana, Greet them after the service. Evans and Jeanette, we love you. Please stay after the service so we can embrace you. Back to my sermon. That was a commercial break. Just had to say something. <laughs> tax farming. The Romans would assess the tax value, and then the Jews would collect the taxes. And uh, they would bid for that opportunity. Now, why would they do this? Well, what the Jewish tax collectors would do is they were allowed to collect as much as they wanted. So they would kind of skim off the top. They would collect a certain amount that they would then owe to the Romans. That's got to pay back for the tax value of the region, but they could collect beyond that and keep whatever they collected, and there was really nothing the Jews could do about it. So this was clearly an environment that would breed oppression uh, pretty, pretty easily, corruption uh, pretty easily. And, and not only would they collect taxes uh, excessively off the backs of these Jews, they would also sometimes engage themselves as kind of like loan sharks as we think of them today. Uh, engage in predatory lending schemes with the Jews. So someone couldn't pay their taxes, but what they would do is then they would lend them the money at exorbitant rates, and that was a way of collecting even more money and oppressing people even more. And you may wonder, well, why didn't the Jews do something about this? Well, the way the system worked was the Romans would supply bodyguards, kind of thugs, to protect these tax collectors. They'd literally walk around town uh, with these bodyguards with them. Some of you I know have watched The Chosen. Uh, I neither commend or do not commend that you watch The Chosen. But if you've watched The Chosen, their portrayal of that aspect of Matthew, the tax collector's work, is actually pretty accurate. Uh, there are these bodyguards that kind of walk around with the tax collector. They were kind of his muscle to make sure nobody messed with him. Uh, and so they would engage in predatory lending. And again, there's nothing the Jews could really do about that. Uh, more so, it's very common for tax collectors to accept bribes. 
uh, so richer members of society would bribe uh, the tax collectors, and then they would go and collect the difference, the slack, off of the backs of more vulnerable members of society. So what I want you to get is these are really sleazy guys. These are the lowest of the low. They're low lives, and many of them became filthy rich on this system of corruption and oppression. Uh, Zacchaeus, uh, in uh, Luke, I believe it's 19, is where we learn about Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector. So he's kind of the lowest of the low. And of course, the Pharisees were very upset that Jesus would associate with someone as wicked as uh, Zacchaeus, an extraordinarily wealthy man. Bottom line, the tax collectors were crooked men. They were sleazy. They were low lives. And we might summarize by saying they were despised on at least three accounts. They were despised, first of all, as traitors. They were traitors to their class. They were traitors to their people. The Jews, I don't know if you've noticed in the Bible, they tend to stick together. Uh, but, but these Jews would fraternize with Gentiles, and they would sell out their own people uh, in order to collect a profit, to collect uh, a dime off the backs of the poor and the oppressed. They were despised also because they were thieves, and they would steal from people, essentially, uh, through predatory lending and other such means. They would steal from people. And then thirdly, they were seen as uh, criminally unclean. Uh, they basically were in league with unclean Gentiles. Rather than submitting themselves to the purification laws and expectations of the Jews, they were fraternizing with our very oppressors, the Jews would say. Uh, they were associating with unclean uh, Romans. This is who the Levi is, uh, the Levi who's identified here in our passage. And we read, the Lord saw him. The Lord saw him. Now, the Greek word used here implies a more intense and active kind of seeing than just this sort of you know, passive incidental, I saw him. I saw some of you in the hallway. I might have walked right by you. Uh, uh, you see people, bird flies over your head. You see the bird or not, whatever. Just a passive thing. The Greek word won't tolerate that kind of understanding here. This is like he searched him. He examined him. He weighed him. He considered him. This is an in intensive kind of seeing that Jesus did. Jesus saw him. It's not the same word, but it's not unlike the account of the rich young ruler where it says Jesus looked at him and loved him, sort of examined him, measured him, considered him. That's what Jesus is doing. He looks, he sees Matthew, the tax collector. I highlight that just to say, you know, last week we observed Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee in our series in Matthew, and uh, there he calls Simon and Andrew and James and John, and we observed it was no accident Jesus was there that day. He went there to call his sheep. It wasn't happenstance, it wasn't an accident, he wasn't there by mistake, it wasn't some coincidence. Jesus went there to call his disciples. He went there to draw his elect. He went there to secure his sheep and to save them. Well, similarly, Jesus went to the tax booth that day for the same reason. He's intentional about this. He saw Matthew. He went to gain Matthew, to win Matthew, to win Levi, Matthew, whichever term you use. And we read next that he finds Levi sitting at the tax booth. What's Levi doing? Sitting at the tax booth. In other words, he's presently engaged in that foul work that made him the scourge of the Jewish people. That work, that activity, which had defined him up until that point, such that people referred to him as Levi the tax collector or Matthew the tax collector. Jesus finds him engaged in the very activity, the very conduct, the very behavior the very sin from which he needed to be saved. The very activity that ought to have been a source of shame to him. Jesus finds him in the midst of his sin. I like to think of it as, 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 as though there were like a queue. A queue is in like a line. You know, so, so here's the tax collector at the booth. People are lined up to pay their taxes. And again, this is speculation. I don't know that it happened like this. But it helps me understand, I think, what's going on here a little bit better. Uh, you, you have at the front, maybe there's some rich older man and uh, Levi has just accepted a bribe from him. He kind of leaned into Levi, whispered in his ear, slipped him some cash, and he leaves. Levi's all too eager to receive the bribe. And then right after the old man, you know, next up in line is uh, this older widow. And she has fallen prey to a predatory lending scheme with Levi, the tax collector. And she just doesn't have the scratch. She can't pay. And mercilessly, ruthlessly... Levi commands one of his thugs, take her away. Uh, she'll learn to pay. Uh, she's not getting out until she pays the final penny. Send her away. And then I like to imagine next in line was Jesus. And Jesus is just looking at him. He sees him. Now, of course, we have a summary of 
this conversation that happens, this dialogue. Not much of a dialogue, it's just Jesus talking to Levi. But there was some interaction with them, uh, in between them. And, and Jesus searched him, and it's as if uh, Levi's thoughts, his motives, the hidden intentions of his heart, his past record, it's sort of all laid bare before Jesus. Jesus engages him. And whatever is said, the outcome is that Levi is thoroughly ashamed of himself. He recognizes, as many of us have at some point in our lives, that all of our sin was carried out under the watchful eye of God. That there's nothing hidden from him. And Levi sort of comes to himself. He sees, I've been engaged in duplicity. I've been engaged in wickedness. Jesus exposes his sin, and then he draws him to himself. Uh, David would understand that Levi was saved. A sick man was made well. A sinner was called to repentance. Jesus goes to him in the midst of his sin, and it's there that he draws him to himself. And that's the next words here. Jesus said to him, follow me. And there it is again. If you are here last week, you've heard this sermon already. The fundamental call of discipleship is to come after Jesus, to follow Jesus. Again, Jesus says this now to Levi, the very same call to discipleship. Become my disciple. Come after me. Give me your life. Make me your Lord and Savior. Come, Levi. I'll have you. I'll receive you. I'll be your Lord. I'll be your Savior. You come, Levi, and be my disciple. What do we read then? He left everything and rose and followed him. And again, we see like last week, following always involves leaving. We considered last week uh, Simon and Andrew. What did they have to do? They, they left their nets and followed Jesus. What did James and John have to do? They left the boat and their father and followed Jesus. Here we just read of Levi. He left everything. He left everything. He left the tax booth behind. He probably left his, all his revenue behind. He probably left his physical security behind. Because my assumption would be the Romans would not take well to those who defect from the work of tax collection. No too many inside secrets. Uh, he left everything to follow Jesus. This is the cost of discipleship. And Levi was all too ready to make that exchange. I don't want any of this anymore. All my sin, all the filthy money that I gathered off the backs of God's people, I renounce it. I leave everything. I follow the Lord. This is nothing short of regeneration. This is new birth. This is conversion. Levi is a new man. He's been converted through Jesus Christ. Just a quick point of application before we move on to point number two. Christian, I asked you last week, uh, when you were first called to be a disciple of Jesus, where was it that Jesus found you? Just think back on your own calling. Maybe it was a day, maybe it was a season. Where was it that Jesus found you? Was it like with Simon and Andrew, engage in your work? Or was it like uh, James and John, engage with your family, engage with your father? For Levi, he was engaged in his sin. He was engaged in the very activity that would justly invite the wrath of God. Had God not been merciful to him in Jesus Christ. So I wonder for some here, I don't know everybody's heart. This message comes to you this morning and you are in the midst of some great wickedness, like right now. Uh, some great carriage of evil, some duplicity, maybe some immoral sexual escapade, maybe some great deception, some kind of manipulation, uh, some oppression of another person. You're involved in something. I don't know what only the Lord can know. Jesus, friend, is pleased to go to right where people are in their sin and right there to call them and to receive them. Uh, Jesus doesn't always wait till someone expresses some interest. He goes to sinners in their sin and is pleased to draw them to himself. He calls you, friend, from your sin. He calls you out of your sin. He calls you today just as he called Levi. Right now, caught up in some kind of wicked thing, well, Jesus comes to you this morning through this message, and he invites you also. Are you going to follow me? Come after me. Are you willing to leave all and follow me? Come out of your sin. Come from your sin and come unto Jesus. That is the call of discipleship, to come and follow after me, leaving all, to become the Lord's. And I'll just say, if you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, whatever you may think about Christianity, I hope you'll understand this. 
uh, that those who are made to be disciples of Jesus, we believe, uh, are those who do not need to be in some way prepared to become Christians. Jesus comes to us exactly where we are. He comes to us exactly in our sin. And he draws us out of our sin and unto Christ. The bar to come to Christ is actually quite low. You need to know that you're a sinner. You need to be ashamed of yourself. You need to come in repentance. And you need to know that Jesus is a great Savior. That he will receive you. These are the kinds of people that Jesus saves. Okay, consider with me now secondly. That's Levi's call. Consider with me Levi's party. Levi's party. Verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. That's uh, not good. Okay, it's like a large gathering of racists. Large gathering of sex offenders. It'd be one thing if one slipped into the party. But this is a large gathering of the most despised kind of person in society. And Jesus is there. A large gathering of tax collectors. There's a few things to observe here about Levi's party. Levi throws a party presumably as a result of his new relationship with Jesus. Levi has turned from his sins. He's found forgiveness in Jesus Christ. He's a new man, and so he throws a party. And there are at least a few reasons I think we can even see in the text uh, about why Levi is throwing this party. Three reasons in particular. Uh, First, I think he simply wants to feast and celebrate what has happened to him. I've become a Christian. I've been saved from my sins. I'm a new man. And that is worth celebrating. Uh, In Luke 15, uh, you have the parable of the lost sheep. And there we read that the shepherd leaves the 99, he goes and finds the one, and he brings it back with the the sheep on his shoulders. And what do we read? There's more rejoicing in heaven over one soul saved. There's a great party or feasting, as it were, in heaven over the salvation of a soul. And the very next pericope, the very next section there, is the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, The prodigal son, if you're not familiar with that story, uh, he grows up in his father's home, he collects his inheritance early, he wants to go out in the world and spend his money and live in sin and degradation. He goes out and he does that, and he comes to the end of himself, into a place of brokenness and penitence, and he's eating out of the pig's food. And he says, I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to go back and repent. And we read as he comes back, the father sees him even a long way off, and he runs to him. He embraces him, and he kisses him. And he puts a robe on him, and he brings him home. What does he do? He kills the fatted calf. And he sends out letters to all their friends and family. Come over. Come, come, come to the house. We're having a party. Because my son who was lost is now found. It's an illustration of the rejoicing that should take place over the salvation of a sinner. We have it illustrated here in our text. Matthew, who was lost, has been found. Uh, Matthew, who was lost, has been saved. As he says, friends, come, come to my house. We're going to party. We're going to celebrate what God has done. We're going to feast in gratitude over the goodness of Christ. The second reason I think he throws the party, I think we see this pretty manifestly in the text, he wants to honor Jesus. He wants to honor Jesus. Uh, We read, and Levi made him, that is Jesus, a great feast. He wants to honor the Lord who has saved him. And this is not unusual in the gospel accounts. It's very common uh, through maybe some feast or some act of devotion or or kindness, maybe uh, as the woman washed Jesus' feet with oil, anointed his head with oil, These expressions that those who have been lost, when they come to faith in Christ, they're often these expressions of thankfulness to God, wanting to honor God, wanting to honor the Lord for His grace. So we see here Levi wanting to honor the Lord, making a feast for the Lord. And then the third reason, I think is most interesting, the third reason Levi throws this feast, I think is because he wanted to bring his sinful friends into close contact with Jesus. He wanted his friends, his associates, his colleagues, to meet this Jesus also. And who were his friends? Kids, who were Levi the tax collector's friends? Oh, we read a large company of tax collectors. Those are the only friends he had. Uh, Surely none of the other Jews would have associated with him at this point. He just had his sinful friends who engaged with him in his sinful work. And so when he's going through his cell phone to think, who am I going to invite to the party? Uh, He's going to his Facebook friend list for the mass invite. Only tax collectors on that list. A large company of tax collectors, his sinful friends, are invited because Levi wants his friends to meet Christ also. And this feast would be an occasion to bring his friends into contact with Jesus. You see, upon his conversion, Levi was not only thinking of himself 
but he wanted to devise a way to get Jesus into contact with his lost friends and loved ones. Again, a couple points of application before the third point. First of all, brothers and sisters, we should communicate by our lives and by the parties we throw and by the feasting we do, by the things that we celebrate, that nothing in life is better than when a sinner is saved. There's just nothing in life that's better. We feast for all kinds of reasons. Some of you might have feasted too much last week. We feast for all kinds of reasons. Well, listen, a sinner being saved by the grace of God, a lost sheep being brought home, is more important than graduations. It's something we're celebrating more so even than a wedding, than Thanksgiving, than Christmas, than our team winning the championship game or something like that. This is the greatest thing in the universe worth celebrating. Uh, When a man or a woman lost in sin is saved by the grace of God. And so we should celebrate. We seek to do this when we have baptisms to try to ring a celebratory note about what's going on. But it'd be in every way appropriate. You come to faith in Christ, invite friends over, invite me over, I'll come. And we'll celebrate the grace of God and what he has done. I have very pleasant memories of the day I was baptized. My parents throwing a, a special gathering, a special party. I was given you know, a ceremonial Bible that was mine, you know, and, and parents and friends and family and folks from church were invited over to celebrate what the Lord had done. It's a wholly appropriate thing. When a sinner is saved, there should be feasting, there should be rejoicing, there should be gladness. And so I just ask, like parents here today, uh, do your kids understand this? Uh, do they know that for you, nothing would matter to you more than to see your children converted? Uh, John says, I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. Your kids understand that? Uh, What what makes uh, the sun of gladness rise and set for mom or for dad? Is it just grades? Uh, Some kids grow up knowing, look, the the big thing that matters to my parents is that I get good grades. I've never seen my dad more mad than when my grades were bad. And I've never seen him more proud of me than when my grades were good. If your children feel that way about you, dads, moms, you need to repent and reconsider how you're communicating with your kids. It's totally appropriate to communicate that grades matter. They do. It's totally appropriate to communicate to them that you care who their friends are and how much screen time they use. But if they get the sense the thing that matters to you most is that they walk a straight line, oh friend, I don't think you understand uh, what our responsibility is as parents. Help your kids to understand what matters most to mom, what matters most to dad, is that you're safe in Christ, that you know the Lord, that you embrace the God of your fathers, the God of your mothers. We want you to know Jesus. Help your kids to feel that and to know that. Uh, I've, I've felt need this week in consideration of this passage, some introspection on my own part as a pastor. And I've asked myself, does the, this church know that for uh, us as elders, uh, there are Tons of things that matter to us about the life of this church. But does the church know, do they sense, that what gives us the most joy and the most rejoicing and is the cause of most celebration is when a sinner is saved? Do they know that we're most concerned that all those under our ministries are saved by the grace of God? Do they feel that? Oh, friends, we want you to walk in harmony and unity with one another. We want you to understand and believe sound doctrine. We want you to walk in an orderly manner, as the scriptures call us to. But more than anything else, friends, we want you to be saved. Saved to the uttermost. Presented whole in Christ on the last day. And when a man or woman is saved, friends, do we honor the Lord with our thanksgiving and our worship? Do we feast? Do we celebrate? Do we communicate? By our prayers, by our worship, this is what we want. God, this is what we wish for you to do. We want to see men and women saved by the grace of God. And when it happens, do we acknowledge him? And do we praise him? And do we worship him for what he's done? Just a further application before the third point. A further application that I think commends itself. I'm just so impressed with Levi's instinct. He's converted. He's excited about what God has done for his poor soul. And it's like his first impulse is, I, I got to tell my friends about this. I got to gather that crowd of tax collectors. Come over. Is there some way we can get these sinners around Jesus? And it's worth asking friends, very personally, 
what am I doing to bring sinners in my life into contact with Jesus? Hey, what are you doing? Are we instructed by Levi's example? I wonder, do you remember the zeal and the joy that was in your heart when you were first converted and how you just couldn't help yourself? acknowledging what God had done for your soul. And you were eager to tell people about the Lord Jesus. Uh, some of you have at times uh, been in the cage stage Calvinist phase. Well, that's not a very pleasant phase. But the cage stage Christian phase, like, got to let this guy out of the cage. He's got to tell people about Jesus. Do you remember that zeal? Is that zeal gone? That excitement over telling people the good news? But Jesus, the friend of sinners, how we love to tell the story. What Jesus has done for my poor soul. Let us, friends, learn from Levi's example. See something of a zeal for the lost. And let us all consider, how can we bring our friends into contact with Jesus? You all know lost people. You all know lost people. Well, well what ways, what means might be used to bring them closer to Jesus? They might be far from him, but they're close to you. What are you doing to draw them, to bring them into settings where they can hear the gospel? So invite your friends, come to church, uh, come to the small group, uh, come to the men's breakfast. It's Christmas time, leverage the sort of cultural capital we have in kind of our nominally Christian culture here and figure out are there ways in the Christmas season we might bring people to, I don't know, a Christmas party or we're having a Christmas concert on the 18th, maybe we could get some folks to come. You've got to bait them with the good music that's got to be had and the pie and the s'mores out in the parking lot. Uh, but I plan to preach Christ that night. Maybe there are some who could hear about the Lord Jesus and who might be saved. Consider ways you might devise. I love, I've heard of gatherings like this in our church, uh, like a women's game night. And uh, the text goes out right before, uh, hey, just to let you know, my unbelieving sister agreed to come. Very surprised that she agreed. So you all know what to do. We had a Thanksgiving gathering recently. I was so encouraged at the last minute. A uh, lost young man who my wife and I know was able to come for the holidays. Uh, and it, it seemed that everybody was kind of okay. You know, there's a lost person among us. How can, we, how can we move the conversation in a Christward direction? Strategizing, devising. How can we bring lost people into contact with Jesus? Levi's concerned about this. He's thinking, I found life, I found salvation, and I want those sinners, those former associates of mine, to find what I found. Or we might say, to be found, as I have been found. All right, consider with me thirdly now, we've seen Levi's call, Levi's party, the Pharisees' complaint. Wah, wah. Wouldn't it have been great if the story just ended there, right? Man saved the party of folks that come and they hear from Jesus. But here come the Pharisees. Verse 30, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? I assume this was outside the event, like outside the house. Surely those Pharisees would not be found inside that house. Or maybe it was the next day, we don't know. Uh, but at some point, the Pharisees engaged the disciples. What is your Lord doing? What, what is this we've heard? Eating with tax collectors and sinners. We read they grumbled. The language connotes a strong emotive kind of groaning. An emotional, exasperated kind of murmuring. Uh, my children are young, my children grumble, but not like this. Uh, the Greek word is egon gutso, egon gutso. And one of the commentators says, even the word itself sounds like its meaning. Egon gutso, to grumble, to murmur, to have an intense emotive complaint. Oh, what's he doing now? Why does your Lord eat with tax collectors and sinners? It offended them, and they grumbled within them. These Pharisees and scribes objected strenuously to what Jesus was doing, to attend a party with sinners. It's not proper for Jews. It's not proper for rabbis. It's certainly not proper for Israel's Messiah. Now, what exactly is it that is so offensive to these Pharisees? Like at rock bottom, what's the issue? 
Well, they might express it in various ways, but the bottom line is simply this. Holy people should not associate with unholy people. Godly people don't associate with sinners. Their objection, you see, is to Jesus' association. They don't like the company he keeps. He should not be fraternizing with sinners. And maybe in this complaint is the notion that not only should he not be fraternizing with sinners, why hasn't he been coming over to our parties? He should be courting us in our schools and keeping to our traditions and moving among the powerful and the morally clean and the truly good citizens. Sure, it would be one thing for a sinner to come to him and maybe present himself in the temple for cleansing and a state of penitent humility and maybe then to submit himself to a program of remedial learning and rehabilitation from the Pharisees. But it's another thing for Jesus to go into the den of iniquity and to fraternize and associate himself with tax collectors and sinners. I'll just say as a kind of sidebar, it's precisely at this point that many object to Christianity. A lot of people object, it offends them, that the bar is set so low. That the rich man and the poor man are in the same place at the foot of the cross. Uh, the person with two PhDs and the person who dropped out of high school, they're in the same place at the foot of the cross. There's no boasting allowed. And it offends people. But you're saying, I would have to come in this way? Acknowledging that I'm not as hot as I think I am, not as smart as I think I am, not as achieved as I think I am, uh, that rather I must lower myself and humble myself. That's a hard thing for the proud to do. I think that's more or less the meaning why it's hard for a rich man to go to the eye of a needle than to be saved. God can do this. He does this all the time. But it offends the rich in this world. It offends the mighty in this world. It offends the proud in this world. We looked at 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31 last week. It talked about how not many of you were noble, and not many of you were powerful, but you were rather the foolish and the despised and the weak and the lowly. I think a lot of people are offended because the bar is set too low. And what will be magnified if they come to Christ is not their own achievement and their own qualifications and their own credentials. They'd have to give all glory to God. And that offends them. That offended these Pharisees. This is their objection. Jesus should not be spending time with sinners. And he certainly shouldn't be feasting with them. He should be with us. And keep in mind, this is not an isolated episode for Jesus. In Luke's gospel in particular, Jesus is going to hear this criticism often. In Luke 7, verse 34. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him. A glutton and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, Jesus never refers to himself as the friend of sinners. That was a criticism people leveled at him. He's not upset with the appellation. But it was, it was a bad thing. It was considered this, this friend of sinners. Luke 15, uh, verses 1 through 2. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. In Luke 19, verse 7, this is the account of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is converted, the chief tax collector, the ringleader among the sinners. And we read verse 7, when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. This was not a one-off event for Jesus. This was his pattern, his reputation. The Lord Jesus made it his practice to form relationships with lost people. He spent time with them. He got to know them. And friends, he was willing to see them first as persons. You got that right. Jesus didn't just walk around barking at people, repent, follow me. Jesus got to know people. What is it that you do? Oh, you're a tax collector? Would it be all right if I treated you to lunch and we can talk about that? I'd be interested to know why you've chosen this profession. He saw them first as persons. And he didn't feel it was some kind of compromise to get to know them to genuinely love them, to hear their stories, to listen to them, to understand what makes them tick. He didn't insist that the only conversation worth having with a lost person is one in which you tell them that they're a sinner destined for hell. Jesus formed relationships with lost people, and he was willing to spend time with them socially, and he got to know their stories, and he asked them questions, and he communicated in various ways his genuine 
interest in them and his love for them and his willingness to be a friend to them. This is why Jesus gained that reputation, that he was the friend of sinners. Now, lest we get the wrong idea in our heads, let's be clear about something. Jesus never affirmed anybody in their sin. We are Jesus, the friend of sinners. We should recognize Jesus never affirmed anybody in their sins. There are people who often have duplicitous motives, who love to go to passages like this and say, well, there it is. Jesus loved a good party. He'd rather hang out with the drunks and the prostitutes instead of all the religious people. Jesus never judged people for their sins. Jesus was a friend of sinners, and he accepted and affirmed them just as they were. Another such kind of insipid and facile statements that have no foundation in the Bible. I know of a pastor who has told the story of how he once carelessly made the offhand remark, you know, Jesus loved to party with the drunks. And after the service, a man came up to him. Uh, who had been saved out of alcoholism. And he says, no, he didn't. Jesus never partied with me in my sin. Jesus called me out of my sin. And he saved me from my sin. I appreciate this pastor and being vulnerable and sharing that story and how he was sweetly rebuked by that man for saying something falsely about the Lord. You see, Jesus moved in social circles with sinners in order to lead them to see themselves as needy sinners who could find forgiveness and new life in him. Jesus knew the work of love was to show people their sins and their need of him and to bring people to a place of repentance and faith in him. Jesus does this repeatedly. We have numerous instances of Jesus calling sinners to repentance. We don't have any instances of Jesus affirming people in their sin. Jesus was the friend of sinners in order to bring sinners to himself, that they would leave their sins, be called out of their sins, and be called into a discipling relationship with him that they might have everlasting life. And friends, I'll just say at this point, it's especially important for young people to appreciate this, but all of us, one of the lies our culture will tell us is that it is impossible to be a friend of someone without accepting and affirming everything that they do. Uh, That I can't befriend someone and accept them as a person without affirming everything that they think, everything that they say, everything that they do. That somehow that's contrary to friendship, to not affirm their sinful behavior. I've heard numerous people say things like, you know, I'm not really focused on trying to get my friends to see their sin. It's not my job to judge people or call people to repentance. I'm really just focused on showing them the love of Christ. Oh, friend, if that's your attitude, I don't know that you know anything about the love of Christ. It's not an impulse of love to affirm people and stroke people in the very behavior that is going to send them to hell. It's not an impulse of love to aid and abet sinners on their way to eternal damnation. If that's your attitude, you think, well, to be loving is to never bring up this sin issue. It's to never bring up where they stand with Jesus. If you think that is loving, I assure you it will not appear loving on the last day. That person that you profess to love will be an eternal torment forever where there is only weeping and gnashing of teeth, and they will be your accuser. Why didn't you say something? We must have spent hundreds of hours together. You knew what I was doing. You didn't say anything. You believed that I would go here. You said nothing. Friend, aren't you glad that somebody warned you and was willing to risk some standing the relationship? Friend, I have to talk to you about this. And we'll do it on your timetable. I'm not going to impose on you, but I need to tell you. Listen, this tax collecting we've been doing, it's all a sham. It's a wicked, dirty thing. And I met a man today who searched my heart, showed me that I'm a sinner, and he saved my soul. And I, I, look, would you just come over? I'm having a gathering. You could sit on the outskirts, okay? You don't have to shake his hand or even talk to him. Just, just, Just come. 
and listen. Just see, see what you can glean from him. Friends, it is the impulse of love to think, to consider. How can I move things in a direction with this relationship? To see this person liberated from sin. They might turn from sin. That they might be forgiven of their sins. Jesus did not affirm people in their sins. He was the friend of sinners. In order to draw them to himself, to repentance and discipleship, he loved them in order to win them. And it was this that drew the ire of the Pharisees. What is the Pharisees' objection? What is their complaint? If this man were truly holy, if he were truly the Christ, if he were a proper rabbi, he wouldn't be spending time around sinful people. He wouldn't be going to them. He wouldn't be found where they are. You see, it is precisely Jesus' love and compassion towards sinners that offends them. They want him to separate himself from sinners. But Jesus will instead seek them out. They want him to associate with those who are outwardly clean. But Jesus will associate with those who are not just outwardly dirty, but inwardly dirty. They want him to share fellowship with the proud. But Jesus will only know fellowship with the lowly. The Pharisees want Jesus to come and commend them. Jesus came instead to call sinners to repentance. Well, so much for this third point, the Pharisees' complaint. Consider with me fourthly and finally. Jesus' response. Levi's call, Levi's party, the Pharisees' complaint, Jesus' response. And kids, if you've been able to track with me so far, great. If not, please come back for the last 10 minutes here, okay? It's the most important part. When I get to the response, I'm almost glad the Pharisees showed up because it is the Pharisees' complaint that provokes uh, this statement from Jesus that is the hope of my soul and the soul of everyone who needs a Savior. Verse 31, And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You sense Jesus' simple logic. A physician doesn't see patients who aren't sick, that aren't in some way broken, that aren't in need of healing. The well have no need of a physician. We have lots of doctors here. Uh, Dr. Streer is an oncologist. He's a doctor dealing with cancer. And suppose you don't have cancer, you don't have any of the symptoms of cancer, but you say, I'm going to go see Dr. Streer and you sit down to talk to Dr. Streer, and he says, how can I help you today? What can I do for you? Uh, what's, what's ailing you? What sort of sickness do you have? What's, what's concerning to you? And you say, oh, there's nothing wrong. I don't have any sickness. I just thought you might enjoy my company. <laughs> and I'm sure Dr. Streer would be gentlemanly and would spend time with you. Uh, but at some point in the conversation, he would say, well, I think you might misunderstand something. I'm an oncologist. I'm a cancer doctor. And I have a waiting room out there of people who have cancer. If you don't have cancer, we don't really have much more to talk about. I'm a doctor. I must be among my sick patients. That's something of what Jesus is saying. It's a simple logic. I'm a healer. I'm a doctor. I'm a physician. I came for those who are sick. Now, let's be clear. Jesus is not suggesting the Pharisees are actually well. Uh, this is Jesus exposing uh, their pride by this statement. This is Jesus using a kind of sanctified sarcasm. Oh, you think you're well. You seem to not have any notion of any sort of sickness. Well, then I must not have come for you. You must not need a Messiah. But see, I came to heal all your diseases. I came to save you from your sins. You don't think you have any problems? You don't think you have any sins? Well, I need to be among those who are sick, or we might say those who understand, who know that they're sick. And this was characteristic of the Pharisees' attitude at numerous points. Jesus exposes it. Luke 16, verse 15, and he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. Now, you don't see yourself as sinners. You think you're well. God knows your heart. Uh, in Luke 18, 
uh, you have the account, as I said earlier, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And he introduces that parable by saying, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. You see, friends, for the Pharisees, they could see the sins in others, but they had no sense of sin in themselves. Does that reflect your attitude? You could so easily sin, see the sins in others, but have no sense of your own sinfulness and need. And Jesus says, well, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, those who know they have the disease, I have come for them. In other words, the Pharisees don't know that they're sick. They can't see it. Some of you have relatives perhaps like this. There's some serious medical problem, but they won't acknowledge it. And they act as though they're just fine. And they don't want to hear you talk about their need to go see a doctor. And you've sadly resolved, there's nothing I can do for this person. Until they see what the problem themselves, I, I can't do anything. They have to come to see for themselves that they're sick, they're not well, they need a doctor. They need a cure, they need healing. But I can't do that for them. The Pharisees were in that boat. They didn't see that they were sick. And in a kind of arrogant spiritual pride and self-righteousness, they persisted under the delusion that they were really well. And Jesus says, okay, you feel that way about yourself. Well, then I didn't come for you. Don't you understand? I'm a physician that came for sick people. People that understand their need of a savior. Where there is the disease, there goes the doctor. I am needed wherever sickness is found. I am needed wherever sin is found. And I will go to a world in sin, in sickness, and I will come to heal them. Jesus Christ came for sick people. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And friend, if you are not sensible of your own weakness and sin and need, that statement will mean nothing to you. There's nothing especially special about that statement. But if you are aware of the sickness of your heart, if you feel a sense of your own sins, if you're acquainted with your own false motives and your own bad record and of all your guilt and shame, this has to shine for you as one of the brightest statements in all the Bible. Because what it means is he came exactly for me. Who are we? We're the sick. We're the diseased. We're the broken. We're the sinful. We're the ungodly. We're the unrighteous. The exact ones for whom Jesus came. You say, well, you don't know, preacher, how sick I am. You don't know the sins I've committed. You might have a different judgment, a different opinion on whether or not I'm a candidate for Jesus' love and for his cure. You say, preacher, I've had an abortion. Uh, not just one, actually. Numerous abortions. You say, I I've been hiding a private life of homosexuality for years, and I've indulged that sin repeatedly. Uh, you know, preacher, I've never told anybody this, but I've, I've contracted a prostitute before, and not just once. Uh, I've sought out sexual encounters on trips out of town. I've done terrible things. I've been addicted to drugs, and not only have I been addicted to drugs, I've dealt drugs, and I've destroyed people's lives. Like, I sold drugs and ruined people's lives. I've abused people. I've abandoned and alienated my children. Preacher, I used to conquer women as sexual trophies, and I left them bent over and broken. I used to seduce and entice men, all to stroke my vanity, and I've wrecked homes. I've destroyed lives. I've ruined marriages. I've done wicked things. You listen, I understand that. But now you understand me. The well have no need of a physician. Jesus came for the sick. He came for the broken. He came for the needy. He came for those who are sick in sin and sick of sin. If that's you, you qualify. The doctor will see you. The physician invites you to come. And he's got help for you and healing for you and medicine for you. 
He didn't come to call the righteous. If you were righteous, you wouldn't need him. It's exactly because you're a sinner that you need him. And friend, little sins only need a little savior. Great sins require a great savior. And Jesus is a great savior. He knows what to do with your bad record, those things that make you ashamed. He knows what to do. He's a skilled physician. He can save you from your sins, whatever it is. We're about to sing in a moment, Come You Sinners. I want to read two lines to you, two stanzas. We're going to sing in a moment, Come You Sinners, Poor and Wretched, Weak and Wounded, Sick and Sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity joined with power. He is able, he is able. He is willing, doubt no more. Come, you weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous, not the righteous. Sinners, Jesus came to call. So, so here's, here's the last word Advent, Christmas time. Christ has come, and, and you are walking in a neighborhood, just like my wife and I and some friends from church were last night, and you see all these nativity scenes, and you hear the Christmas songs and all of that. I want you to think that the reason that baby was born was so that a sick sinner like me could be made well, so that someone who has done wicked things and has only invited the just wrath of God could be saved. This is the meaning of Christmas. This is why he came, not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray together.